sometimes you will write stories that really piss people off. And you don't know if that is going to be in a month from now, in a year from now, in five years from now. And if your default is to share absolutely everything and anything that you're doing on social media, at some point in time, some people that are upset with something that you wrote may actually find that and use that to harass you, harass your friends, harass your loved ones. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about cybersecurity for reporters in high-risk situations. Regularly on the show, we rely on exclusive reporting from journalists who are uncovering stories that could put them or their sources in danger. When we discussed the invasive spyware Pegasus earlier this year, we borrowed heavily from the Pegasus Project, an initiative that required reporters to verify surveillance was happening on individuals, while at the same time protecting those individuals from surveillance. Which, when you think about it, it isn't easy. You, you can't just call someone and say, we think you're being surveilled. Without first considering that those very words are, well, being surveilled. Every day, journalists across the globe are working on stories that challenge powerful individuals, upset known dictators, and likely increase the probability for intense scrutiny from repressive governments. This is and can be dangerous work because in today's modern age, there are now countless digital traces that can get left behind. In 2017, a former NSA contractor named Reality Winner was arrested for allegedly leaking an intelligence report to the online outlet The Intercept. In trying to verify that intelligence report, a reporter for The Intercept sent a scanned copy of the document to the NSA which then notified the FBI. According to later reporting from Vice, which relied on a report from the FBI, the images sent over to the NSA for verification, quote, appeared to be folded and or creased, suggesting they had been printed and hand-carried out of a secured space, end quote. And so that meant, right, that the FBI and the NSA now only had to figure out not who had simply viewed a document, but who had printed it. Now, there is some disagreement about what happened next, but some security experts initially claimed that because the NSA had received a scanned image of a printed document, they could find what are called print tracking dots. Print tracking dots are tiny, invisible-to-the-naked-eye dots of color, often the palest of yellows, that are actually printed on every single page that a printer spits out. You just can't see them. Arranged in a certain pattern, these dots correspond to a single device or a type of device, and they can give some clues about what type of device printed that document. Some believed that those printer dots gave away reality winner's identity, but a fuller picture later revealed that the NSA had also learned that reality emailed the intercept from her private email address while using her work computer. 
Reality eventually received the longest sentence ever for sharing classified information, five years and three months in federal prison. The former co-editor of The Intercept said that the way that the story was handled, including the push to have the documents verified by the NSA, was a, quote, deeply embarrassing newsroom failure. How then can a journalist do the right thing in the right way? How, how can she write important stories privately and publish them securely for everyone involved? Today, to help us understand just those questions, we're speaking with Runa Sandvik, a security researcher. Runa, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I am so excited to have you here. I was formerly a more classic idea of a journalist, you know, writing stories every day. And, you know, I I read about these things. And I'll be honest here, we didn't have this level of security training. We just kind of went in blind. And so it's great to find out all the things I did wrong. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So I wanted to start just really basic here, actually, which is in trying to understand you know, why is cybersecurity even necessary for reporters? I'm trying to see, you know, what cyber threats are reporters facing and and who is behind those threats? Sure. So, you know, think about the way that you work as a reporter. You're doing research, so you're browsing the internet, you're taking notes, likely in like Google Docs or some other like cloud service, you're interviewing sources, maybe you're using a transcription service to make your life a bit easier when it comes to getting some good quotes in writing from the recording. You are using this online CMS to edit your story and go back and forth with your editors. And that's also the system that is then used to push your story online. And I think in in every single one of those buckets, you are using the internet, you're using third-party cloud services, you're using various internet-connected tools. And so I think digital security does become this like core part of the journalistic process because it's it's really just like built in and inherent to the work that you're doing. And so if you're not also thinking about the way in which your online accounts can be hacked, the way in which someone could attempt to go after your sources, the way that you can be censored, I think at that point, you would be failing to account for for some of the inherent risks in the work that you're doing. When you just kind of laid it out like that, it was really clear. It, it was so kind of obvious here, like, oh, yeah, you're, everything you're doing has a digital component from, from speaking to sources, which could involve emailing them, from writing notes down in, right, like a, like a cloud service, like Google Docs, from transcribing things, from maybe relying on a third party to transcribe your notes, which some people might do. I'm not entirely certain. I never did. But if your organization has money, you know, hey, why not? Um, And also just like, again, that content management system, right, that you're just relying on with your editor to go back and forth for edits. And so what I'm curious here is about, you know, in every single bucket there, right, you have to be thinking about digital security. For those things that a reporter is doing, are they facing threats, you know, to have those accounts hacked, to have those notes unveiled, revealed, you know, pried from them? Like, what what are the threats that they are facing? So I think that when we're talking about securing a reporter and sort of really digging into like, what, what would go into ensuring that you work safely? And I would argue that that would be digital safety. So ensuring that your online accounts are protected, that your devices are secure, that we're actually using the different settings and features that are available today to do so. 
It also would include physical safety, so ensuring that you're not in any physical danger. It includes emotional safety as well. And also, depending on where in the world you are, there would be a legal component to it as well to make sure that you can continue to do the research and the stories that, that you want to pursue without running into sort of any type of legal action as a result. And I think that when, when you then look at like the risks and the threats, I think just in the U.S., there has been stories over the years of the U.S. government going after either individual reporters or media orgs, either for their sources or to push back on something that they've published. There's been stories in India of some threat actor using malware to plant evidence on the laptops of activists. There's stories of threat actors going after social media accounts, either because the accounts are just high profile and have a lot of followers and would be very useful to continue some sort of a spam or like scam, um, or simply because those accounts would actually hold a whole lot of info. Yeah, the malware example, I didn't know that. That's bad. <laughs> like, I have no other way to put it. Like, I had no idea. The stories in the West, right, I had heard of, I, I'm familiar with our government taking pretty extreme measures, charging people with um, with what's called the Espionage Act. We're using it against people who have released information from the government that they think is in the public's benefit, which is extreme. You know, in my, in my opinion, that's pr- pretty extreme. Something also that I have reported on here and, and done on the show is, is talking about just about surveillance. And I mentioned at the top of the show about that invasive spyware Pegasus has been used to target many journalists across the globe, as, as we know from prior reporting. And that type of surveillance, that, that's the thing I'm most familiar with. And so I wanted to understand, right, is like surveillance as a threat? Is, is surveillance of journalists, is that something new? Or do we just have more electronic means to do that in today's age? I think that we have, there's a greater awareness of what is both being done and what is doable these days. And that also just means because we're more aware, we also have a greater ability now to detect that that is taking place than, than what we had, say, four or five years ago, which which is a great spot to be in, right? Mm. Uh, just as last summer, Amnesty International released the mobile verification toolkit, I think the name is, mm-hmm. that allows anyone to check their iPhone and their iCloud backup for traces of the Pegasus spyware, which is fantastic. Up until that point, if you wondered or perhaps suspected that your phone had been compromised, you would have had to contact Amnesty or Citizen Lab and get their assistance in in checking for the spyware. Yeah. So with all of this, I, I wanted to also understand what happens when something goes wrong, right? When when security is breached? And, and do we have real life examples of journalists whose security defenses have been breached? And if so, what happened because of that? I think a good example would be when the New York Times was hacked by China in 2012. If I remember correctly, the threat actor was then in, like they had access to the Times systems for I think about four months. And although they were, the actor was after the sources of two reporters at that point in time based in China, um, the Times had just published a story about, I think, rich people in, in China. So the authorities were not 
not entirely happy about that. They wanted to figure out who the sources were. They then went after, I think they fished someone at the company and then from there gained access to, to the emails accounts of these reporters. But to your question of, well, what happened after that? I think that's a question that we don't really talk about all that often, not necessarily in like this specific context, but like, you know, so-and-so company was breached or company this and that got ransomware and information was um, exfiltrated and perhaps later published somewhere on the dark web. What happens next? I don't know if we've really done any sort of in-depth follow-up stories there to fully understand the impact, like what happens with your information. It feels like it's such a hard and difficult trail to trace and to find out, but the idea that, right, the idea that there isn't a a next is, it would seem naive, you know, like, oh, they got hacked and okay, that's it. <laughs> like, But clearly, right, someone's information was was grabbed in a way that that wasn't okay. And it may have been released and it may have gone to the dark web. And I know this is something that folks always kind of talk about in terms of data breaches that are like after just companies. So not after targeted individuals, but, you know, let's say there's a data breach on a company like Uber, right? Years ago, and someone has a credit card created in their name. And so they're like, oh, it was the data breach. That's what it was. That's what led to the creation of a credit card in my name fraudulently. But it's really hard to prove that. We have examples. We have we have uh, lawsuits that have been filed that didn't really go anywhere because proving where your information went through this through these dark channels for an ordinary person is extraordinarily difficult. We just don't know. Yeah, it, it sort of feels like we're just like fumbling around in the dark, trying to secure our data the best that we can with the options available to us on all of these different sites. And then if and when something happens, we're like, oops, I, I hope it's okay, which is just a really, really interesting and also shitty spot to be in. Talking about, you know, we're trying our best here. You know, we're trying our best to secure the data in the ways that we can with the platforms we have and the tools we have. Let's talk about those those tools. Let's talk about those tools and, and also how you train journalists to do this because you do this work, right? You you do this, obviously, you do this work and you help people understand it's it's not just, hey, here's a, here's a tool. It's like there's training that goes on to it. And so what goes into providing cybersecurity to the journalists that you help? I think what I what I focus most on is what I would call foundational security, like best practice steps that you can take. And, and that really applies to anyone and everyone, regardless of, of your role and regardless of like if you're a reporter, the type of story that you work on. And so I really focus then on the importance of having strong and unique passwords on all the different sites that you use on using two-factor authentication on all the sites that offer it, and also on reviewing the privacy and security settings from time to time to make sure that you're just using what's available to you. And in terms of your phone and your laptop, making sure that those devices are up to date. I think at this point, like in 2022, right, we have the tools, we have the technology to do our work safely. And it's just a matter of actually using it and using it in the right way. So that's when we can talk about just the workflow and the process. And uh, for example, going back to the reality winner case, it's not a matter of like lacking the tools to verify in information in a safe way, but it's just about having that process and having had that 
discussion internally uh, around, you know, how do we contact the authorities to verify the information that we just got? And having those discussions before something pops up so that you have that process in place, I think is really important. I really enjoyed that some of the things you said there, right, were just like really basic, like you said, again, foundational, obviously, but just strong passwords, 2FA, uh, reviewing the privacy and security settings, which is something that is easy to forget, you know, like you start an account and you're like, all right, well, that's there. Uh, and then, you know, obviously running security software updates, making sure your your devices and your programs are, are fully up to date. All of those things are like, I think it's funny because those are things that we tell people to do, like as a cybersecurity company and and people don't do them. <laughs> um, and I, I understand why, you know, but like the thing that the thing that we always talk about is like, there's two things that we can never get people to do. We can't get them to make better passwords and we can't, we can't get them to not click on something. And those, those two problems, I am certain account for more than 50% of cyber attacks, you know, in the world. Like, and I'm, I'm pulling that number out of my, you know, out of my hat, out of nowhere. But I mean, every time we reported on something, there's something as simple as like a bad password, you know, or not updating your software. I wanted to understand, you know, beyond those foundations, beyond those simple practices, are there like, are there also programs? Are there like software tools that journalists use that, you know, maybe the public doesn't use in a day-to-day -day way? And what are those tools? What are those programs? If you want to go past foundational steps, I think at that point, we can sort of start looking at you're traveling to China. How do you secure your laptop for that trip? Maybe you get a new laptop and a new phone just for that trip, but then how do you set that up? Which system do you choose? How do you encrypt it? What do you do with it when it comes back? I think in, in some cases, I've recommended using Chromebooks for travel because they're just cheap and easy and everything's in the cloud. And so if you lose it, if someone steals it, if it's seized when you're crossing the border, you're not out, you know, the thousands of dollars that a MacBook will cost you. There are also neat, um, really neat tools like Tails and Cubes, which are operating systems that can run either in a VM or like on a USB stick or on a dedicated laptop and just take extra steps then to secure the data that you have and the things that you're doing. Those are like technically neat tools and definitely used in, in newsrooms as well, but certainly not on a day-to-day -day basis. I think this is true as well for regular folks, people who are not reporters, people who are not in these situations, that there are a lot of neat tools, right? There's a lot of things that are like, oh, that's cool. But whether they're applicable to everyday life is is questionable, right? And so they have targeted uses. And I wonder sometimes if if the availability, that the sheer volume of these types of tools kind of confuses everyday folks, you know, like, do I, do I need this? Why do I need this? How is this becoming added to like my daily management of my online security? That's it. I, th I think it's, I think it can get confusing. I, I wanted to move a bit and understand one of these tools, uh, something called Secure Drop, which I understand is a, is a way to safely leave a tip for a reporter. If you're an individual and you have something private and sensitive that you want to share, you go through something called Secure Drop. What is Secure Drop? How does it work? So Secure Drop is a whistleblower submission system that is 
developed by uh, Freedom of the Press Foundation for the purpose of allowing really anyone, but it's currently uh, primarily used in, in newsrooms around the world, to set up and then offer to the public a secure tips channel that also allows the individual reaching out to remain anonymous should they should they want that. The neat part about SecureDrop is, so back in the day, like before 2016, the New York Times did not have SecureDrop. At that point in time, if, if you as an individual wanted to send a tip to someone at the New York Times, you first had to figure out who you wanted to contact. You then had to figure out how to contact them. And then you also had to hope that they would actually check the email address that you emailed or the post box you sent the mail to, or they actually checked their voicemail, that their, that their uh, voicemail box wasn't, wasn't full. Like there wasn't a way to just send something to the newsroom at the New York Times and be confident that someone was actually going to look at it. So that's where SecureDrop comes in. So the way that it would work is that once set up at MediaWorg, you would have a dedicated team of people that on ideally some regular schedule or checking to see if there are new tips there. Consider it like checking your inbox, right? Just to see if there's something new. And if there's something there, this team will then quickly review it and figure out, is this like a random cat photo or is this like a legitimate tip? And if it's a legitimate tip, who then in the newsroom should this be passed on to? And so it, it really became a way for people to contact a news organization without having that initial contact first, which I think is a great option. Yeah, that's something I didn't even think about, which makes so much sense in terms of just trying to reach a newsroom. If you have a story to tell, you don't necessarily know which reporter on staff is going to be the best to tell that story. And so, like, that's a lot of work, you know, for a whistleblower to be like, oh, I know that, you know, I, I have this story, so it's X reporter. And then I have to reach out to them and hope that they check their email or hope that they have a public, you know, phone number and hope that their mailbox isn't full, hope that they're at their desk. Like, there's so many opportunities for a message to not be heard and Secure job seems to fix that. I also wanted to understand, what does a person have to do? Do they have to connect privately? Like, is there any involvement of the Tor network? Like, how does how does someone tell a tip privately with SecureDrop? So SecureDrop is set up to use the Tor network. So as the source, you first have to use the Tor browser to connect to the .onion site that you want to use. And then from there, you're accessing the SecureDrop system. And so on the source side of things, it does have that initial step of like the source would have to use Tor and would have to either download the tool or use it through Tails or something like that and then access the system. So I wanted to move away from tools a bit and then again, steer this conversation into operational security, right? And and the reason I'm asking about that is um, in the last couple of weeks, we've seen some stories here. Uh, we saw pictures this month from a U.S. senator on a video call with Ukraine's president, right, President Zelensky. And, you know, there were screenshots shared of like a Zoom call. And it had President Zelensky in the Zoom call. And those screenshots, those pictures uh, were not supposed to be shared. Like, it wasn't supposed to be shared that the president was on call with a U.S. senator. And it wasn't supposed to be broadcast. And I think it's that like simple kind of blunder there where you're sharing something that wasn't supposed to be shared. And I I am particularly interested in this because it's 
like for a reporter, right? Like the job is to publish things. The job is to write things and eventually publish them publicly. And I, I just kind of wonder if there's just some part of securing journalists, right? Where the training is, hey, broadcast less, you know, publish less. And, and how do you get that into their minds? Or, or how do you tell them, you know, what is and isn't okay to share at a certain point in the reporting process? I think that's a great question. And I think, so my approach has, has always been that I will help you do your work securely. And so when it comes to like what you can and cannot publish, I think there's certainly conversation to be had about what you're sharing about yourself and your work and your family and your friends and your pets and where that is done and and, and who can see that. And then also the, the sort of risks in oversharing. But when it comes to what is being published in a reporting context, I think that's a conversation to be had within the newsroom among the editors and the journalists. But I think that it is really important that that's a conversation that is taking place, that we do talk about the sort of risks of doing so and and also really weighing that, you know, is this actually in the public interest or do we just want to be able to splash on Twitter that we're on a Zoom call with the president of Ukraine? <laughs> when you mentioned you leave it to reporters to understand what they what they do and don't share. And, and you mentioned a couple of things there, right? You know, like things about their family, things about their pets, you know, things about their home. What is what is the risk of of sharing things like that on a platform like Twitter? Like if for people who may not understand, why could that be a bad idea? I think as a reporter, you don't, depending on where you are and, and the type of stories that you write and the position that you're in, right? You're, you're not, you're not always going to write stories that are fuzzy and cute and neat and and safe and that make people happy. Sometimes you will write stories that really piss people off. And you don't know if that is going to be in a month from now, in a year from now, in five years from now. And if your default is to share absolutely everything and anything that you're doing on social media, at some point in time, some people that are upset with something that you wrote may actually find that and use that to harass you, harass your friends, harass your loved ones. It is really hard to sort of take back then what you've put out on the internet. And so it's much easier to think about this in advance and to just think about today what it is that you're sharing and what is available about you and be proactive in doing that work rather than try to secure all of this information while you're also dealing with some sort of threats and harassment. I wanted to go in a slightly different direction here. We've talked a lot about about trainings, about security software, about tools, about foundational security. I wanted to understand kind of briefly, is there something that in your work you've found that, you know, journalists or reporters or, or anyone that you're helping educate, are there some things that they instinctively just absolutely get like immediately like what's the easiest for them to pick up that's a good question i think that really depends on who you're talking to and in what context but i think that one thing that that definitely seems to land right away would be this focus on securing the information that they have through our reporting project, like communications with a source, the identity of a source, any uh, raw interview notes, those types of things, because that really maps to what they've done with 
pen and paper before. Like, this is information that can be sensitive. This is information that is still very much in like raw draft form. It's not for publication. So whether that's sitting in like a Google Doc somewhere or your pen and paper, this idea that this is important stuff that you need to keep safe is definitely something that 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 lands. It's so funny. You touched on something that like was a fear, you know, long ago. I used to work for a legal affairs newspaper. So I wrote about trials and stuff. And like the nightmare situation, right, was that like draft notes would be involved in like a discovery process for litigation against the newspaper, you know? And like, it's just this idea that you're like, oh my gosh, like the things I write in my draft notes, like just to sort things out are not they're going to get me in trouble. Like they're going to get someone in trouble. And it's not because like you're writing ridiculous things. It's because in your drafts, like you look, you're, you're trying to tie things together that maybe aren't, you know, they don't make sense. And you're, you're trying to piece things that you haven't been able to piece together before. And so you might leap to conclusions and further reporting proves those conclusions wrong. Right. And that's fine. That's the process. But it's, it's, I don't know. It's sort of like, it's like going to a baking competition and like your, your cake is still in the oven and you're like, Oh no, like this is, <laughs> this is a bad idea. I wanted to understand also the inverse of that question. Is there something that is really difficult for folks to understand? Is it just, it just seems to be like the wall, you know, for that, that, that is the most difficult to overcome. Changing habits is really hard. Either because we don't want to, we don't like it, it is slow, it is new, it's not how I've done it for the past 20 years. Yeah, and so like knowing knowing when to use these different tools becomes really hard. And especially when you have to choose between doing something in a very secure way and being the one with the scoop, that's a, that's a tough choice to make. There's that immediate pressure, right? Where you want to publish a story. And unfortunately, the way we understand security is that we process it as this is something that takes more time. And that goes against like a lot of initial training, you know, of, of getting a story out. I mean, it used to be the case that like if a company wanted to enable two factor on their company email, that used to be a it used to be a bit of a challenge because you had to deal with a lot of people that would push back and say it's slow. I don't have my phone with me. I lost my phone. I forgot the thing. What do I do? Why do I need it? But I think over time, as that it just has become this like standard, I think a lot of people just expect it and have just come to accept that like this is a thing. It slows me down for like 30 extra seconds and that's it. Then I don't have to deal with it. I wanted to wrap up here with one last question, right? And we talked a little bit about it with Secure Drop, but I wonder if there's some other things we can understand. And and the question here is, right, so much of like a journalist's work, right, is is who she talks to, right? Is is who her sources are. Uh, we've talked a lot about protecting sources, protecting sources information. What are the cybersecurity guidelines for protecting sources, right? And in particular, whistleblowers. I think the best way to answer that would be to recommend reading uh, cases where uh, the authorities have gone after sources and just understand how that is done. So a few years ago, Michael Lee at The Intercept wrote this article about how the Trump administration was using, in a lot of cases, metadata in leak investigations uh, to try and figure out Mm -hmm. who was the source for 
a BuzzFeed story, for example. And I think it's just really, really important to like, yes, you have the foundational security stuff that we've talked about and you can like figure out all sorts of like other neat tools to use like SecureDrop and Tor and Tails and Cubes, but also understanding what happens when the story is published and how the authorities might respond, I think becomes really important as well. There's no, like you don't have a guarantee that they're not going to be able to figure out who your source is. But what you can do is make that as difficult as possible by taking all of these other steps and having that awareness around how that type of investigation is done. Runa, I just wanted to thank you again for explaining everything that you have today. It's been fascinating to learn all of this stuff. So again, thank you for coming on today's show. Thank you for having me. To our listeners at home, we'll talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at blog.malwarebytes.com. And please, if you like what you heard today, follow and review our show. <laughs>